Luke 18, verse 31. And while you're finding your place, let me say a few words of introduction. In the book of Acts, as Luke records for us, the apostles frequently preached a single message, which can be summarized in the simple phrase, Jesus is the Christ. It's the foundational confession of the Christian faith, that Jesus Christ is not his last name, but his title. He is the Christ, the Messiah, whom God has promised, the anointed one that God had promised his people long ago through the prophets. And the proof of this claim that Jesus is the Christ, as the apostles present it again and again in the book of Acts, is that Scripture foretold that it was necessary that the Christ should suffer and die and rise. And yet, though the disciples and the apostles knew very well how to defend this and how to make this argument as they went forth preaching the gospel in the book of Acts, as Luke records for us in his gospel, we see that this very truth confused them. They had already come to confess that Jesus is the Christ, but they were confused as Jesus frequently predicted his suffering and his death. The cross at that point was a stumbling block to them because they could not see what a blind man saw, because they could not perceive the necessity of the cross, because they had not yet come to understand their own need for mercy and Jesus' ability to meet that need. That's what we're going to see in the text before us this morning as we look at Luke chapter 18, verse 31, as Jesus predicts a third time, a third major prediction concerning His suffering, His death, and resurrection. The disciples don't understand, and yet we're also going to see a blind man who sees quite clearly who Jesus is and understands what He can do. So if you found your place, would you follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 31 to the end of the chapter. And taking the twelve, He said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Father in heaven, we pray now that you would give us understanding, like this blind man, so that we might understand and see that indeed Jesus is the Christ, not only the Son of David, 
but your very own Son, the only begotten Son of God. And seeing Him as the Christ, help us, O Lord, to see the necessity of His cross for our sake, so that we might look to You alone for the mercy that we most need, so that we might be saved by the same faith that the blind man had toward You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we think about this foundation of our confession, the foundation of our belief as Christians, that Jesus is the Christ, we also need to ask a question. How can we know that this is true? By that token, how can we know that anything is true? How can we know that something that we believe or something that we know is actually something that really is the case? On the one hand, we can look at objective proofs. And the Lord guides us and gives us ways in which we can objectively prove whether something is true or false. On the other hand, we also consider subjective proofs, which won't necessarily convince other people, but will convince us when we come to sense in our being that something really is true. As we look at the text this morning, we're going to consider both. And I want to give you some principles by which we can evaluate objectively the truth of a claim. Here, I am presenting to you this claim that Jesus is the Christ, and that because He is the Christ, it was necessary that He should suffer in this way, that He should die, that on the third day He should rise, in order to accomplish all that God had spoken through the prophets. Now, how can we evaluate this claim objectively? Here are three principles. We can call it the scriptural proof, we can call it the prophetic proof, and we can call it a testimonial proof. The scriptural proof is represented in these words from Psalm 18, verse 30, where David wrote, This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. It's also represented in the words of the Apostle Paul from Romans when he says, Let God be true, though every man were a liar. In other words, we take it for granted, we take it as true, that when God speaks, His Word is true. We don't put the Lord to the test, for it's written, you shall not test the Lord your God, but God Himself has tested and proven His Word, has shown Himself faithful time and time again throughout history, so that we are to believe that when God speaks, His Word is true. Because He is the only one who is able to bring to pass all that He has spoken. The God who spoke light in the darkness, who spoke the universe into existence, cannot but speak that which is true. And so there's our first proof. If God has said it, it is true. And we can call that the scriptural proof. As people who accept what we find in Scripture, in the Bible, as God's Word to us. The second proof, and the third proof, help us to evaluate whether or not a human being speaks truly when he comes to us. One is the prophetic proof, and the other is the testimonial proof. Let me take them in reverse order. The testimonial proof works like this. In the law, we are taught that the testimony of two witnesses is true. Jesus Himself says that in the Gospel of John, referencing texts from Numbers and Deuteronomy that required that you had to have two or three independent eyewitnesses who could verify, who could corroborate one another's witness in order to 
in, in order to prove a charge against somebody. In other words, you could not, if someone was charged with something like murder, you could not carry out a sentence against that person unless the charge could be proven by two or three independent witnesses. And this principle is applied broadly in the New Testament within the church in different ways, and it's applied universally in our world. It works in our court system. Historians, both ancient and modern, use it. We seek to confirm the testimony of one person against another by evaluating their testimony, evaluating their witness to see who speaks truly. And if the testimony of trustworthy witnesses confirms, one another, they confirm one another by their testimony, then we accept it as truth. The second way in which we can validate the testimony of a person is the prophetic proof. And you see, the idea here is that when someone comes saying, thus saith the Lord, you don't have other independent witnesses always who can corroborate that person's testimony concerning what God has said. And so God, in His Word to His people in the law, gave them ways by which they could test the truth of a prophet to see if that person, when he said, thus saith the Lord, truly spoke for the Lord, now, you might say, well, if that person performs signs and wonders, then I know that that person is sent from God and he speaks truly, but not so. For in Deuteronomy 13, Moses taught the people of Israel this way. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. In other words, if that person could do mighty works, but that person led the people away from God, in other words, he was uh, failing the scriptural proof, his words, his leading was contradicting God's own testimony concerning himself that he is the only God that person was not to be believed, even if he could do mighty works and signs and wonders. And again, in Deuteronomy 18, verse 21 through 22, God gave another proof, because sometimes a person might arise and seek to speak for the Lord himself, not a false god, and yet his words would not be true. He would not truly be a representative of the Lord. And so Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 18, verse 21, if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. In other words, that prophet made predictions and the predictions did not come to pass. You knew he was a liar. We might say, well, what if the prophet predicts something that is long beyond my life? We can look at the history of God's prophets and we can see that the, all the prophets made many predictions, some near and some far. So, for example, with the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah predicted things that would happen hundreds of years after his life had come to an end. But Isaiah also predicted things that took place in his own life. He predicted that Hezekiah would be healed of his disease. He predicted that the Assyrians would come in and ravage the land, only to be miraculously turned away by the Lord as they came up to the gates of Jerusalem. And these things came to place, came to pass, and they validated Isaiah then as the prophet of the Lord, as one who spoke truly for the Lord. And so all that he then spoke for the Lord was to be believed by God's people. And so these are proofs that God has given us by which we can determine objectively 
Does someone speak truly? The scriptural proof. Is it consistent with what we know to be God's word in scripture? Prophetic proof. Do the words come to pass? Does God bring to pass the words that this person spoke? And the testimonial proof. Can we verify the claims by independent testimony of trustworthy witnesses? And I give you those objective proofs because here as we come to this text in Luke chapter 18, we see that what Jesus says passes all of these tests. Objectively, we can verify what Jesus said. It's not just Luke who testifies that Jesus predicted at least three times that he must go to the cross and suffer many things and die and rise. It's Matthew who predicts it declares that and testifies to it. It's Mark who declares and testifies to it. It's John who declares and testifies to it. And these individuals also show us that they are not relying merely upon their own witness, their own testimony, but the testimony of many who saw these things, many who heard these things, many credible eyewitnesses that heard Jesus declare these things. That's what Luke told us from the very beginning of his gospel. If you remember in Luke chapter 1, when he described what he was writing for Theophilus, he said, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Here we see Luke faithfully recording the results of that research, the testimony of those who heard Jesus speak, that Jesus predicted beforehand, saying, we are going to Jerusalem. We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished before he had been arrested, before he had been beaten, before he had been spit upon, before he had been shamefully treated, before he had been handed over to the Roman governor and to his soldiers. Jesus said, I will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. If any one of those things failed, the word of God would have failed. But everything that Jesus there said happened exactly as he said it. He was handed over to the Gentiles, to the nations, that is. He was mocked. He was insulted. They spit upon him. They scourged him, flogging him. And they killed him all across. And on the third day, He rose. And so we have testimony, independent and corroborated by many eyewitnesses, that Jesus said these things beforehand, and he did them. But we also then see the prophetic proof coming to pass. For it's one thing for Jesus to perceive ahead of time the opposition that he faces from the leaders and the rulers of the people and the threat that he faces from the Romans, and to say, It's going to come to an end. This is not going to work out, and I'll probably be crucified for this. And no one would have thought, well, that's an extraordinary prediction. But to predict his rising from the dead is an amazing thing. To predict it beforehand. And the surest way to prove that he spoke truly, that he truly spoke for God, indeed as the very Son of God, 
was to go as he said it was written of him, and to die, and to rise. And so we have multiple eyewitnesses, hundreds of eyewitnesses who have borne witness, who testify that Jesus did what was written of him. He died, and he rose. And so we have the prophetic proof that validates our confession, our faith, the testimony that Christ bore concerning himself. And yet his disciples still did not understand because they did not understand the scriptural proof. And this perhaps is the most difficult part. You see how Luke draws our attention to the confusion that the disciples underwent as they heard Jesus say these words. Look at verse 34. But they understood none of these things. Jesus said, Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. But they understood none of it. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Earlier in this gospel, in Luke chapter 9, as Luke recorded Jesus' earlier predictions of his suffering, he said similar things in Luke 9, 21 through 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And again later in Luke chapter 9 and verse 44 and 45, he said, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. They were afraid to ask him about this saying. From there to here, we see that the disciples are confused. They have confessed that Jesus is the Christ, but they cannot understand how this confession is consistent with what he's saying about his cross, that he must suffer, and he must die, and it must rise. And it's not because they do not understand the words he is saying. It's not because they cannot make sense of the sentences that he's using. It's because they do not understand this line. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Where is it written? How is it foretold? What does the Lord say concerning the Christ that would lead one to conclude that the Christ must suffer and die and rise? And I suggest to you that their misunderstanding or their inability to understand Scripture is caused by their inability to understand what the blind man understood. So we'll come back to the Scriptural proof, but first I want you to consider the example of this blind man. How Luke holds him forth in contrast with the disciples for his keenness of sight, in spite of his inability to see what's before his eyes, and for his perception and his understanding. See Jesus drawing near to Jericho, and a blind man is sitting there by the roadside begging, and he hears the crowd going by, and he inquires of them, what does this mean? And they tell him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. They associate Jesus with his hometown, with that nothing, that meaningful, meaningless town, that little podunk place up in Galilee. But that would at least make known which Jesus they mean, for that's a common name. Well, it's Jesus of Nazareth. Here he is passing by. The crowd is excited to be following Jesus. He's a wonder worker, but he's just Jesus of Nazareth. But the blind man already understands that there's more to this man than the crowd is letting on, more that they, than they realize. And so he cries out, 
Not calling him Jesus of Nazareth, but Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It was impossible at this time for someone to use the language son of David and not hear messianic promises. Not think of God's promises to David to raise up a son of David, to raise up again for himself a kingdom in Israel ruled by a son of David that would be an everlasting dominion. Those promises are clear in Scripture. Those promises are not vague. They're not hard to see. If you were to walk up at this time to any one of Jesus' disciples and said, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? And after they say, yes, I do, you say, what do you think that means? They would have no trouble telling you it means a kingdom. It means he's a king. It means he's the son of David. It means he will reign forever. They're thinking about a kingdom, the kingdom of God, one that would have no end. And so this man recognizes, here is the Christ, Jesus, son of David, and seeing that he's the Christ, sees that he's one who stands able to show him mercy. Have mercy on me. And Luke really emphasizes this point by narrating what the crowd does as they rebuke him and they try to silence him. Be quiet over there. But he doesn't listen to them. He persists, crying out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He sees his need of mercy, and he sees that Jesus is able to meet him in his need. So Jesus stops. Jesus brings him near by command. And as he comes near, he asks him, what do you want me to do for you? In other words, in what way do you want me to show mercy to you? And the man who has surely heard of other miraculous healings whereby Jesus has cleansed lepers and given sight to the blind and made the lame walk in fulfillment of what Isaiah spoke of the Christ and of God's saving work, that the blind would see, the deaf would hear, the lame would walk, and the slaves would go free. He wanted this for himself as well. So he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And what Jesus says next, recover your sight, your faith has made you well, holds this man forward as an example of saving faith. That phrase, your faith has made you well, I've made this point before. We could render it, and I suggest we should render it, your faith has saved you. We hear that four times in Luke's Gospel. You remember back in Luke 7, when a woman of the city, a sinful woman, came and was weeping and washing Jesus' feet. He said, daughter, your sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you. And it's a, in the original, the very same phrase as we read here. And when he cleansed ten lepers, he didn't say to all ten lepers, your faith has saved you, even though he healed all of them. But it was the one who came back and praised God and thanked him. He said to him, your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you well. Well, the meaning can save and be made well can be the same, but we've seen in Luke how accompanying God's saving work through Christ, there are miraculous healings that we should expect in anticipation of the day when all of our suffering will be healed in the resurrection. And so we see blind people receiving sight. We see the deaf receiving hearing in fulfillment of God's word through Isaiah. And this man understands that Christ is the one who is able to make this happen. And Jesus, the Son of David, is the one who is able to show him this mercy. And he seeks it. And Jesus sees in that request, 
true and saving faith. And by saying this, he commends this man to us as an example of true and saving faith. In his phrase, have mercy on me. And his recognition that Jesus is the one who can show him mercy. And immediately he's recovered his sight and he followed him. We see the result of true and saving faith and that he glorified God. He praised the Lord. And all the people when they saw it did likewise. Giving praise to God. Very simply he saw, as I've said again and must say again, that Jesus is the one who can show us the mercy that we most need. And that reality then unlocks for us the scriptures that foretold his dying and his rising. It helps us, it enables us to understand what it was that the prophets spoke. And I want to give you an example of how we can work through that. Because if you were to spend your afternoon or this next week reading from Isaiah through Jeremiah and Ezekiel and through then the minor prophets in search of a text that says plainly and clearly that the Christ must suffer, die, and rise. Something perhaps even as plain and clear as Jesus' own statement in this text. I submit to you that you won't find it. But you will find text. I don't mean that you won't find any text that speak of this. But even when we look at texts like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, they are veiled. They're difficult to understand. It's hard to know who the prophet is writing about. And what is it that he's saying? But if we step back and we consider all of God's testimony through the prophets and in the law, we can see that what Jesus is saying, why he understands the necessity of the cross, has to do not only with God, what God says about the Christ, but what, with what God says about his people and their relationship to him. These past two weeks, I've spent a good deal of time looking at phrases like we find in this text. Everything that is written. All the things that have been written. I looked at every example of that in the New Testament and in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And I found an interesting thing that I want to put before you this morning. There are seven passages in the Old Testament. For the sake of time, I won't take you to them or quote them, but I'll list them. Joshua 1.8. Joshua 8.34. Joshua 23.6. 2 Kings 22.13. 1 Chronicles 16.40. 2 Chronicles 34, 21, and Jeremiah 25, 13. Those seven texts are the only texts in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that use this identical same phrase, everything that is written. And it, before you think, well, this is a quirk of translation. It faithfully translates a Hebrew phrase that means the same and is found only in those seven texts with one exception, one further text in Isaiah. And then you might say, but those aren't prophets. And I say to you, for Jesus they were. For the way that they classified the books of the Old Testament in Jesus' day, or as the law, that's Genesis through Deuteronomy, the prophets and the writings, which would be Psalms, Proverbs, and some of the wisdom literature, including Daniel and some other texts. But the prophets had the former prophets and the latter prophets. And the former prophets were the books that we know as histories, Joshua. Judges, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Samuel. So these texts, by and large, are from what Jesus understood as the prophets. And each of those texts uses this selfsame phrase. And the reason I draw your attention to that is because we find a very similar idea in every one of those texts. God speaks 
to his people through one of his servants or through a prophet or to Joshua himself and reminds them of their duty to do everything that is written in the law. Using this phrase, they must do all that is written in the law. And if they do all that is written in the law, God will bring promised blessings upon them. But if they fail and they turn from everything that is written in the law, God will bring curses upon them. He'll either give them the blessings that are earned by doing everything that is written in His Word or the curses that come upon those who reject and turn from everything that is written in God's Word. And the people of Israel, you know, turn from everything that is written in God's Word. And so God brought these curses upon them. And what happened to them? They were delivered over to the nations, as Psalm 106.41 reads, He gave them into the hand of the nations, the Gentiles, so that those who hated them ruled over them. They were mocked. They were insulted, as the psalmist writes in Psalm 137, 1 through 3, by the waters of Babylon. There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us of songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. They were mocked and they were insulted after they had been delivered into the hands of the nations. And yet, What God told His people was that He would restore them and He would save them. We think of Hosea's words in Hosea 6, that God struck His people, but after two days He would give them life. On the third day He would raise them up. And what I'm suggesting to you is that what Jesus is saying is that everything that God promised that would come upon His people because of their disobedience and their willful turning from everything that is written, He took upon Himself for their sake. That's why it was necessary for Him to go to the cross. Because He came to bear our curse. And so we hear words as we hear in Jesus' prediction in Isaiah 50 verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And Jesus saying, He will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And and Luke guides us with those words that remind us of Isaiah 56, verse 6, to the truth that here is the servant of the Lord that Isaiah spoke about in those chapters, the one who would stand in the place of his people, who was called to be the servant of the Lord, but was a faithless servant. And he would take upon himself their sins and sow their curse. As Isaiah again spoke in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This simple truth that Jesus came to stand in the place of his people, the truth that we confessed as we read this morning in the words of Galatians 3, 10 through 14, 
where we see the same phrase about everything written in the book of the law. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. And yet, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law because he became a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged upon a tree. The reason why it was necessary to accomplish all things written by the prophets for the Son of Man to go to the cross was so that he might take upon himself the curse that was properly ours, so that we might receive, as Paul teaches us in Galatians 3, the blessing of Abraham, and not just the people of Israel, but the Gentiles too. And so, for our sake, Jesus was delivered over to the nations. He was mocked and shamefully treated. He was spit upon, and after flogging, they killed him so that he might make propitiation for our sins, that he might atone for our sins once and for all. And on the third day, he rose in fulfillment of the Scripture, which God spoke of his people Israel, that on the third day they should rise. And the reason they will rise on the third day, the way, reason we will rise on the third day, so to say, is because he first rose on the third day accomplishing all that is written in the Scriptures. There's the scriptural proof of why it was necessary, not just because Jesus made it up or predicted it, but because He rightly interpreted and rightly understood what God had spoken through the prophets. And yet today, even today, many fail to see it. Many refuse to see it. Many are confused by these claims, just like the disciples of our Lord were confused at this time. I suggest to you it's not because of our inability to weigh and consider the evidence, but it's because of our refusal to see that truth that unlocks all of the, uh, our understanding of the prophets, namely, that like the blind man, we stand in need of Christ's mercy, mercy that He alone is able to provide us. We need that saving faith. We need to understand this subjective reality that God is holy and righteous. When you think about the law, and you think about what God commanded His people of Israel, you think about the text we read this morning from Leviticus and all that He required of them. What was it to show? His great holiness and their sinfulness and their need so that they might see His holiness and His righteousness and their sinfulness and what they need in order to draw near to God. And they had to offer these sacrifices again and again and again because the blood of bulls and goats can never really atone for our sin. And because we sin again and again and again. Because God is perfect in holiness. And we don't even come close to doing all things that are written in the law. It's only when we come to recognize that we are sinners, only when we come to recognize our great need and our inability to meet that need in our own strength, that we are then disposed to turn to Christ in faith and to see what the blind man saw. This is true in our own lives. It's true in our growth in the Christian faith, not just in coming to Christ, but we need to recognize this again and again, even as Christians who have embraced this message, that we still depend upon the mercy of Christ. We still stand in need of what He alone can provide. Our sanctification is not something that comes about because we're so disciplined or because we employ the right methods. Our growth in holiness 
comes ultimately because God, by His grace, works in us through the Spirit of Christ, whom He's given us to conform us by degrees into the image of Christ. This is an act of mercy. We stand always in need of God's mercy. It's not a matter of, I come to faith by God's mercy and I keep myself by my strength. No, I come to faith by God's mercy and I stay in God's mercy always, always trusting Christ, always looking to Him to what He can provide me, never looking to myself and my own strength. It doesn't mean that it, the life won't sometimes seem hard or sometimes feel like a lot of work, but it means that ultimately it's God who is working in us, God who is working in me to will and to work for His good pleasure. So if I recognize His mercy, then like the blind man, I go forth having received His mercy, praising God, glorifying God and following Christ in the strength and the sight that He has given me. We stand always in need of His mercy. We need to make this truth clear when we share the gospel with others as well. That the thing that they most need is to be forgiven of their sins. They need to be aware of their sins. They need to understand that they are sinners. It's not just enough to know the objective truth of the gospel. It's not just enough to make apologetic arguments that prove the truth of what we claim. People need to know their guilt before a holy God. We, just as we have come to know our guilt before a holy God. And they need to know that Jesus is the one, the only one, who can meet them in that need, who can provide them the mercy and the grace and the righteousness that they need in order to be welcomed before holy God into his presence as children. For none of us, no one here and no one outside this room, has ever fulfilled all that is written in God's Word, save one who is with us, our Lord Jesus Christ. He fulfilled for our sake everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets. He accomplished it as God foretold. So, This is the foundation of the Christian faith. This is the key that will enable us then to understand, to see what the blind man saw when we see with the eyes of faith our need of mercy, what Christ did to give that mercy to us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray, O Lord, that you would inscribe these words upon our hearts and make us understand them. It can be a difficult thing when we think about your word and the words that you declared by the prophets concerning your son, Jesus Christ, we go searching for words that are clear, like what we heard from Jesus himself in Luke 18, and yet we don't find them. And we're confused. We're unsure how to defend this faith that we've received. And yet, you show us that it is true He really did fulfill your word. Help us to see and understand this, Lord. Help us to embrace this truth and this reality. Not looking for those clear statements that would serve merely as objective proofs that it is written, but also that subjective proof that is true within us. We recognize our own sinfulness, our own need of your mercy, and the great grace that you've shown us in sending your Son to die for us. May we be people of this gospel, Lord. People who believe it always and live in accord with it. May we be people who proclaim it faithfully and hold it forth to the world in which we live. 
that others might hear and believe as they too sense their need of mercy and see in Christ the one who can give that mercy that we most need. This we pray, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.